staff, if you, if, if you could say it that way. And we find uh, then in chapter 13, two beasts that um, serve the purpose, the cause, and, and the kingdom of the great dragon, the devil. So let's pick it up at verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his authority, his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his, his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword... With the sword he must, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, making, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, uh, it is true that we cannot understand the things of God except by the Spirit of God. And Lord, that is particularly true when it comes to the book of Revelation, this genre. And so we pray that your Spirit would give us then uh, that ability to understand the message that you, Lord Jesus, have for us, the church today. We know that there's a blessing here. You promise it. And we, uh, Lord, we want to experience it in truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
Well, as you know, this past week, uh, Joanne and I had the uh, privilege of being down in southern Colorado for a Van Dyke reunion. Uh, Several members of the family went to whitewater rafting on the Arizona River. Uh, Heavy rains that have recently fallen there uh, made the ride particularly uh, dangerous uh, with several class four and five rapids. And so as we were thinking about whether or not to take this ride, I, I just looked online. What is a class four rapids, class five rapids? What do they say? Well, this is what I read. Uh, extremely difficult, long and very violent rapids. A failure to execute a specific maneuver at a specific point may result in serious injury or death. And so I asked my wife, How, would you like to do that? <clears throat> and happily she said no. Um, Actually, when you go, of course, uh, they make you sign a waiver saying, I know that I might die and that's okay, that I won't, I won't sue you. Uh, but they want you to understand the importance, uh, the power of the river. It's very important you understand the power of the river and that you pay attention then uh, to your guide. Well, in a similar way, Jesus has given us Revelation 12 and 13 so that we understand the Christian life is not like taking a tube down the lazy uh, Muskegon River in the middle of August, uh, where you have to push your tube part of the way. Um, Many think the Christian life is exactly that. That if you go to church, you you believe the right things, you, um, you, you, you raise your family the right way, basically this is a tube ride. And, uh, and it's, going to be, it's going to be easy, and it will be enjoyable. And they are stunned to find themselves then in the rapids. Uh, Jesus wants us to know that there will be rapids. There will be trials. There will be uh, things that threaten. There will be rocks of temptation that need to be navigated. There will be deadly whirlpools of false teaching that have to be avoided. This is a journey that that calls us to be serious and to pay attention. And on this journey, some will lose their life. Some will lose their faith. This past week, I was um, just deeply saddened to read that Joshua Harris, former pastor of a large um, Sovereign Grace Church, at least it was Sovereign Grace Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, uh, he's the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye and several other books. He's just divorced his wife, Shannon, of 22 years and has publicly renounced the faith. I am no longer a Christian. We don't, I don't know the whole story. Uh, it seems that what happened is um, that he faced, was faced with the choice between the sexual revolution of our day and biblical Christianity. And to his credit, he recognized the two cannot be reconciled. There are all sorts of people who call themselves Christians and who also embrace the new uh, sexual orthodoxy, which means uh, whatever you desire and whatever you feel is fine. And he, he just recognized that those two things could not be put together. And, and, and so being forced to make a choice, he did. And he chose the revolution. He's not the first He won't be the last. This this journey is a dangerous journey. Jesus says that in the last days, many will fall away, even pastors. Many will fall away. In chapters 12 and 13, Jesus wants us to understand that this is a real contest. There's a real warfare, spiritual warfare taking place. The devil has been cast out of heaven. He is now... um, 
attacking the church. And we have to recognize what he's about. We need to recognize, understand the times that we live in. And in chapter 13, Jesus gives us more information. It's interesting, isn't it, that in this last book, uh, the book of Revelation, the last message, in a sense, written message we have from Christ to the church, there's a significant amount of time talking about the devil. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things as they're taking place and, and before maybe you personally experience them so that you are prepared, so that you understand what this is about. In chapters 12 and 13, there are three distinct demonic features. There's the devil himself, the great red dragon of chapter 12. And now in chapter 13, we see two of his allies, uh, his chief officers maybe, the sea beast, verses 1 through 10, and then the beast from the earth. And together they make an unholy trinity of evil. I don't have the time to get into it this morning, but if you want to do a study, just uh, read through this and note how this uh, unholy trinity mimics the real one, where there's the father of all lies and a son or, uh, who is in the image of the father. Notice he looks exactly like the great dragon, seven heads, ten, horn, uh, ten horns, uh, and, and he suffers a mortal wound and yet is, is uh, miraculously raised back to life, it seems. And, and then there's a third person who uh, exists to get people to worship the second person. It's like the Holy Spirit. It's a fascinating study. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that we are really and truly in a spiritual contest with an enemy who actually does want to destroy you, who hates the church and does uh, all that he can to wreak havoc upon the church. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is not sci-fi. This is the truth about the Christian life. <coughs> <coughs> I'd like to begin then looking at uh, chapter 13 as we study the sea beast, verses 1 through 10. Uh, John says, I saw a beast. Now remember, this is, this is a vision. This isn't a journalistic report. It's a vision. Uh, he, he says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. We're told that this beast was like a leopard and had feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Now again, it's hard to know what does that mean, except we have the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter 7, this is a clear reference to Daniel, Daniel 7, where Daniel the prophet also had a vision. And there he saw four great beasts um, representing four great kingdoms that were to come. The, the kingdom of Babylonia, represented by the lion. Medo-Persian kingdom, represented by the bear. The um, leopard represents the Greek uh, kingdom, the, the kingdom of Greece. And then the fourth, with iron teeth and jaws, uh, the kingdom of Rome. And, and so here in, in Revelation chapter 13, we have a composite. All of those kingdoms represented in this beast. And, and the point being that this this beast doesn't rec uh, represent one specific kingdom or historical person or event, but represents the principality and power behind the kingdoms of this world in their opposition to the reign of God. So D.A. Carson says this, The beast reoccurs throughout history. 
He is Antiochus Epiphanes. He is Nero. He is Pope Innocent III. He is Mao Zedong. He is a reoccurring beast who exercises great authority in historic concrete contexts to oppose the people of God. And that reoccurring nature of this beast, this principality in power, is also seen in this recovery, this miraculous recovery from a fatal wound that we read about in verse 3. Every time it seems like the beast is defeated, he comes back. Uh, The early church had a very um, real experience of this in their own day, shortly before uh, John is writing, uh, John wrote this. Nero was the epitome of evil, a desperately wicked, vile, perverse man who took joy in persecuting the church. Uh, Nero committed suicide in 68 AD, and the church breathed a sigh of relief. And yet, a few short years later, in 81, Domitian rises to power, and he's just as evil and oppressive and wicked as Nero ever was. The beast keeps coming back. And throughout the age of this world, this, these 42 months that we're told about, the, the, between the time of Christ's uh, ascension into heaven and his coming again, There's going to be reoccurring instances of pure evil rising up to oppose God and oppress his church. In modern history, we've had Hitler, we've had Stalin, we've had Pol Pot of Cambodia, we've had Idi Amin, the butcher of Uganda. And it's going to continue to happen. In many parts of the world today, this beast is manifested in the Islamic governments and groups that uh, terrorize and persecute the church. Everywhere you see political oppression of the truth of God and the people of God, you are witnessing the reality of this beast. His nature is uh, that he's defined by blasphemy. You'll know him by his blasphemous nature. Um, Verse 1, we're told he has blasphemous names on its heads. In verse 5 and 6, he's given a mouth to utter blasphemies against God and against his dwelling place. Uh, The early church would quickly recognize here references to Caesar, particularly Domitian. Domitian liked, uh, he demanded to be referred to as our Lord and our God. Think of this, the man rolls out of bed like everyone else, goes to the bathroom, puts his clothes on, Uh, brushes his teeth, and then walks out and says, call me Lord and God. That's exactly what he did. We have this same blasphemous spirit in our day uh, in men like Richard Dawkins, uh, who wrote The God Delusion. Two years ago, 2017, Richard Dawkins was going to give a speech in Ireland. And um, the uh, challenged, there's a law in Ireland against blasphemy. He challenged the Irish police... Um, He says, I'm going to be here on this date. I challenge you to arrest me for blasphemy. And then in his challenge, he included a quote from his book, The God Delusion. Quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, a 
sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He had to spend time on that. <laughs> now think about what, what in the world is going on in the heart of Richard Dawkins. He hates God and delights in blasphemy. Sold three million copies of that book. 2016, it was number two on Amazon. Friends, that's blasphemy. We live in a blasphemous culture. And what Dawkins writes there is quickly becoming the truth of our secular age. The, The idea that the God of Scripture and those who follow or believe in Him are homophobic, misogynistic, and racist is so prevalent that it's accepted as given fact. It no longer needs to be proven. You are those things by virtue of your faith in God. Now, this blasphemous beast not only rails against God, but demands the worship that belongs to God. So, verse 4, they worship the dragon, and they worship the beast. Verse 8, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Now, again, for the early church, uh, the application is straightforward right in front of them. Uh, when, When Caesar and his allies would show up, they erected temples all over the Roman Empire. And they demanded people to go to those temples and to worship the emperor. And to worship not only the emperor, but all the pagan gods of the Roman Empire. And everyone went along, right? How can you stand against Rome? So the question is asked in the text, who can stand against it? Well, that's exactly what people would say. How are you going to resist Rome, the superpower? And so they accepted the blasphemous demands of the Caesars and and the the idolatrous demands of the pagan society. It's just the way it was. Only a fool would resist. And those who did resist faced consequences. The saints of God faced consequences. Polycarp was killed for refusing to do what the beast demanded. And he wasn't alone. People were thrown to the lions and persecuted ruthlessly. And we're told that's exactly what's going to happen. Verse 7, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That's exactly what you see taking place in the early church. And the text reminds us that this is how God has ordained it. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. God has determined that his children will suffer and that there will be martyrs. God has determined that. He set the number of them. But Jesus wants us to remember that this calls for endurance and faith of the saints. This is not a a reason to run the other direction, but it is a reason to pay attention, to be serious, to endure. You see, the sea beast today still is persecuting the church, even to death. The ten worst countries in the world today to be a Christian, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, India, Indonesia. China's increasing its crackdown. These are uh, nations uh, either because of uh, maybe communism, North Korea, China, uh, because of Islamic, um, the Islamic religion, uh, Libya, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, uh, India, it's, it's more political, religious, Hindu nationalism. 
But all over the world, there was a recent article, in fact, just in May 2019, uh, the BBC had a, uh, an article that talked about the genocide of Christians today. Of all people, of all people, uh, of all religious persecution or oppression of any form, 80% of it is towards Christians. It's happening today. The beast is persecuting the saints. And it can very well, friends, happen in our country. I say this over and over, but Jesus wants us to know this is, this is, um, this is how the world works today, right? This is, this is expected. He wants us to know this now so that when it does happen, and when this government begins to persecute Christians, if it does, that that, that is not a reason to abandon your faith. It's a reason, it, it, it's, it'll give you cause to look at your Bible and say, Revelation 13 is actually true. It's exactly what Jesus told me would happen. That's why he's telling us this. Remember when Jesus would tell his disciples uh, what's going to happen to him, and he, and he says, I'm, I'm telling you this so that you won't fall away. So when it happens, you will, you'll be able to recognize that wasn't an accident, it wasn't something went off the track, this is exactly what God had purposed. Jesus' word was true, that's exactly what he's doing here. And then there's the earth beast, verse 11. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, this beast does not have the, uh, anim- uh, the uh, sort of ferocious appearance, le- leopard, lion, bear of the first beast. This beast looks like a lamb. It's winsome, it's attractive, it's appealing, and religious. The, uh, Derek Thomas says that whereas the beast of the sea appears to exercise political power, the beast of the earth bears all the trappings of religion. Uh, this beast is called the false prophet. We'll see that in chapter 16 and chapter 19. A false prophet. He performs signs and wonders in order to lead people to worship. Uh, he has his own bestial baptism, a mark on the forehead and hand. Um, and whereas the sea beast is identified primarily by blasphemy, this beast is identified primarily by idolatry. He creates an image, verses 12 through 14, and makes people worship the beast. And the image is even, even able to speak. You could just, um, it's saturated with idolatry as he leads people to worship what is not God, to worship the devil. But how does he do this? Well, we're told several things in the text. Um, He is convincing. Verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. Uh, The devil has power. Just like Pharaoh's magicians were able to recreate some of the plagues, not all of them, but some of them, uh, the, the beast has some ability to do what seem to be great signs, things that amaze and astonish people. And so the point is, is that the message of the beast will, to the world, be very credible. It will be easy to believe. It'll be, it'll be impressive in its scope and its depth. When people talk about science as having uh, all truth, in a sense, or science being the path to all truth, It sounds reasonable and credible to people. 
the new religion of human autonomy where to be human means you get to define everything as you choose, as you please, including your own gender. That, that makes sense to people. It's credible. But notice that his, the, the, the purpose of these signs is not to enlighten, it's to deceive. By the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. He is the master of deception. And that's how he wields his power. Like the father, who, uh, like the devil, who's the father of all lies, uh, this beast looks like a lamb, looks appealing, winsome, charming, convincing, lamb, but he talks like a dragon. He talks like his father, the devil. He speaks lies, deceit. That's how he wields his power. How did the devil get Eve to sin against God? It wasn't coercion. No threats. Just a simple deception. A little truth combined with a little error. A few important facts left out. And he had the perfect concoction to lead the human race to absolute devastation. And he does exactly the same thing today. A little truth, a little error, a few important things left out, and people are captured by the lie. And he is very, very effective. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. The word, um, those who dwell on the earth, that's... that's um, a phrase in the book of Revelation that means everyone except the children of God. He is universally effective. Everyone believes. By the power of his deception, people happily exchange the truth of God for a lie. Romans chapter 1. They happily do that. No one holds a gun to their head. Because they've been deceived. Now again, friends, this is important to know. You are going to find yourselves in an ever-increasingly uh, secularizing society. You're going to find yourself being an unbelievably uh, tiny minority. It's going to be maybe just you in a classroom full of people who think that God and you are racist, homophobic nuts. And you're going to wonder to yourself, how can the gospel be true? How can Christianity be right when everyone around me loathes it, laughs at it? How is it possible that I'm right and everyone else around me is wrong? And you'll start to doubt your faith, not because you've been shown some evidence that it's false, but you will find it difficult to believe that the whole world could be that wrong. Well, again, you need to remember Revelation 13. The beast will deceive the whole world. Everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. You will be a minority. Think about the early church. No one agrees with the early church. The Roman government hates the, the, the church. The Jewish leaders hate the church. All the pagan temples hate the church. But do they have what's true? Yeah, because it's the word of God. It's, it's God's truth. It's not the church's truth. It's God's truth. So you will be a minority. But on earth you'll be a minority. In, in, in chapter 14, we're going to see that in heaven, you belong to the unanimous majority. 
that every saint, every angel in heaven completely agrees with you. That's really encouraging. There's this innumerable host of heaven. Right, Hebrews 12, 2, all these witnesses, they agree with you. That God is God, that God is faithful and good and true, and the gospel is sufficient for sinners. But you'll need to be prepared because this beast is coercive. Verse 15, he causes those who will not worship the image of the beast to be slain. We're seeing that happen all over the world today. Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the mark of the beast, a lot of speculation. Uh, exactly what is that mark? Uh, I think Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, uh, is correct when he says that it, that, that it refers to a coercive compliance in thought, which is the mark on the forehead, and coercive compliance in action, which is the mark on the hand. That the, that the beast coerces people to go along with the principles of the beast, and those who do not go along will find themselves excluded from the economy and markets of the world. In the early church, that's exactly what was happening. Remember, we talked about the, tr the, the trade guilds, that if you want to participate in the marketplace, in the economy of the day, every, uh, every trade had its guild, and every guild had its patron god or goddess, and you were required to pay homage to that god or goddess to be in the guild. And Christian says, well, we can't do that. We can't eat that meat sacrificed to that idol. And so they lose their ability to engage in the marketplace. That's why the church, uh, particularly in Asia Minor, was so desperately poor. These Macedonian believers who, out of their extreme poverty, had the grace of giving. That poverty is caused in large part because they've been excluded from the marketplace. I think one of the uh, I think we're seeing this sort of coercion increasingly today, from government, from the marketplace itself, uh, calling everyone to comply with the new religion of sexual autonomy, human autonomy, particularly in the matters of sexual ethics. Someone recently gave me a poster taken from a well-known large corporation here in town, which was urging all of its employees to wear a little button that said that they were uh, to publicly identify as friends of the LGBTQ plus community. The CEO of this company here in Grand Rapids has joined with over 700 CEOs of other major corporations, all committed to progressively promoting, uh, to aggressively promoting the LGBTQ agenda. This, this poster explains what it means to be a friend, and it reads like a little, like a catechism for the new religion. Notice it begins, one, um, it's a confessional statement. I know that everyone deserves love and that all love is equal. I know that everyone deserves love and that all love was, is equal. I want you to think about the amount of deception packed into that little phrase. That love is love is love. What's really being spoken is that there is no such thing as sexual immorality. You may love whomever. In other words, you may have sex with whomever you please. All love is equal. 
Secondly, there's a promise to evangelize. I have conversations with people, quote, who are not, uh, quote, I have conversations with people who are not open to the LGBTQ community and share my message of acceptance. I will evangelize my new faith. Three, quote, even though I don't identify as LGBTQ, I still attend pride events. In other words, I promise to attend the public worship of this new religion. Four, quote, I support companies that depict non-traditional family structures in their advertising, and I call out instances of homophobia and transphobia. In other words, I promise to live in, in compliance with the new religion. And if you don't, there will be consequences. This is your boss telling you, put the button on. And most people will. Most people will. The world will ask, who is like the beast and who can stand against it? And the vast majority of people, when push comes to shove, will bow down before the new religion because resistance will seem futile. And the question for the church will be, whom will we serve? Whom will we obey? God or man? The Lord Jesus Christ or the beast? That's why Jesus is telling us this. And Jesus gives us encouragement in the last verse of the chapter, verse 18. This calls for wisdom, understanding the times, knowing how to live for the glory of God in the times. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, again, there's been a lot of ink spilled. Uh, what is this number 666, and, and, and to whom does it refer? Uh, some of the popular throughout uh, the ages, popular suggestions have been Martin Luther. Um, you can imagine why the Catholic Church in that day would, would have uh, voted for Luther as the 666. Uh, Oliver Cromwell has, been, uh, has, has, has his own support. The Pope, um, the Reformers particularly. Henry Kissinger. Not sure where that comes from, but he was uh, once nominated as uh, the man signified here. Um, many think that it's Nero being referred to here. If you, if you spell Nero's name in the Hebrew, Caesar Nero, uh, the, the numbers, the value of the letters will come to 666. But you've got to work with it a little bit, and that's true of just about any, any possible solution here. I think it's best, again, not to see it as an individual, but as a spiritual force and principle. You see, the number 666 is notable because of what it is not. Numbers matter in the book of Revelation. The number 7 is the number of perfection, completion. The number 3 matters. It's, it's the number of the triune God. And so 777 would be the number of the perfection of the triune God. Fullness in every way. 666 then is the number of man. And the point is that the powers of hell, as they're being exercised through the agency of wicked men and women throughout the ages, that will never, ever, ever be equal to the glory and the power of the ever-living God. No matter how fierce the devil rages, no matter how the kingdoms of men seem to be winning, they're always 666, always falling short. Always failing, always losing, never surpassing, never surprising, never supplanting the sovereign reign of King Jesus. And that's the point. It's the number of man, and the number of man is destined to lose and fail. The devil and his host will not win. Jesus Christ will keep his own. 
And we'll wrap up by looking then at verse 8 of chapter 13. There's a mighty exception to the universal reach of the devil's deceptions. All who dwell on earth will worship it. It talks about um, every tribe and people and language and nation. Everyone's going to worship except those whose name has not been, so no, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's a wonderful statement. In other words, everyone whose name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, written there before the foundation of the world, will not worship the beast, will not be deceived by the beast, will not comply with his demands. And in chapter 14, we're going to see there's this innumerable host 144,000 signifying the number uh, 12 times 12 times forever. Old Testament church, New Testament church times infinity, right? This, this vast number who followed the Lamb, who did not believe the lie, didn't engage in the sexual immorality of Babylon. There's a number that God knows who will stand and who will conquer and who will triumph. And that victory is, is assured because of what we read in that little phrase, that they've been sovereignly chosen before the foundation of the world. They've been thoroughly redeemed by the Lamb who was slain. And they are now protected by the power of that Lamb as He reigns on the throne of God. There's, there's, there's so much encouragement and comfort for saints here that, that we stand not in our strength, not by our works, not by our intentions, but by the plan and purpose and power of God. The electing power, the electing purpose, the redeeming power and redeeming purpose, the reigning power and purpose of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, what about Joshua Harris? Why wasn't he protected? That's a fair question. And I would say two things. One, uh, the secret things belong to God, the revealed things belong to us and our children. We're not told we don't have insight into that. I, I think if you talk to Joshua, I'm not sure he himself could tell you why he made that decision. So I don't know Joshua's story. But I know this. Jesus told his heavenly father, I have not lost one of those you have given to me. And Jesus never lies. Jesus told his disciples in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus. So I don't know Josh's story. But I trust my Savior that what he says is true. And if Joshua Harris belongs to Christ, Joshua Harris will return to the faith. And I pray that is exactly what happens. I trust my Savior. No matter what you see happening around you, trust your Savior. You see, the reason people actually go whitewater rafting, even in four and five rapids, is because that every raft has an expert guide, and they trust the guide. And in this Christian life, there are many dangers and toils and snares. You know that to be true. But we have every reason to trust the guide. He has brought every one of his children that are already in heaven. He's safely guided them through this life and brought them home. And he promises to safely lead you there as well. And so no matter the conflict that we find ourselves in, no matter the dangers around us, friends, we can enjoy the ride. We get 
to do this. We get to live the one life we have with Jesus Christ leading us and guiding us. We get to live this one life we have for his cause and his glory, not for the devil's cause. We've been set free from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of light. We get to live our life for Jesus and for eternity. So we need to be serious, but we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. We can joyfully take up the calling right where you live in what seems incredibly mundane and normal to you, unnoteworthy. It is noteworthy to your Lord as he calls you to live your life trusting in his power, trusting in his grace, following his truth until we're finally safely home. Let's do it in faith. Let's endure in joy. Amen. Uh, Lord Jesus, you've, you've spoken your truth. You've reminded us of the world in which we live. We think again of our brothers and sisters who are under the persecuting hatred of the enemy. We think of, Lord, our country, which is the, uh, on the front line of the frontal attack of deception as wave upon wave of lie spill over this country. Demonic deception. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to stand. I pray, Lord, that we'd be serious but not afraid. I pray, Lord, for Joshua Harris, a young man who's made a, a devastating decision to apostatize. But Lord, you have grace And your grace abounds, and I, I just pray that you would give Joshua the ability to grieve and weep like Peter, who denied his Lord, and that Joshua would return and be saved. And Father, I pray for any here this morning who are in the midst of doubt, and that's a real battle, it's a hard battle. But Lord, I pray you'd preserve them, that they would think about what is actually objectively true about Jesus, about his life and death and resurrection, what is true about his word. I pray, Lord, that we, standing in the, in the word of God, the truth of God, the, the objective reality of it, Lord, that we would be able to then, in our faith, fend off the lies of the devil. I pray, Lord, particularly for our young people who are going to face uh, this deception and this coercion in ways that many of us never have. I pray that they would be able to see through the lies, particularly about human autonomy and sexual ethics, about what it means to be alive. I pray, Lord God, that you would give them the ability to see and to believe and to follow Happily, Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. But Lord, lead us all into that. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the word this morning, uh, standing together to sing, Oh, church, arise, put your armor on. Uh, we've been given what we need to stand against the devil's lies. Let's sing together. <laughs>